0: The Eastern Mediterranean has witnessed legal disputes regarding the maritime boundaries, the resource rights and jurisdiction, and UNCLOS serves as the primary legal instrument for resolving these disputes as it provides guidelines for determining the extent of maritime zones, including the exclusive economic zone, the continental shelf of the countries, the states, the territorial waters. So when disputes arise, the UNCLOS offers mechanisms for peaceful settlements, such as negotiation, mediation, arbitration, so adherence to UNCLOS and its interpretation plays a crucial role in addressing the legal dispute and promoting stability in a region that has a legal dispute.
1: Hello and welcome to the Diplomatic Academy The Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Petros Petricos. This episode focuses on the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, also known as UNCLOS, and the energy prospects we see in the Eastern Mediterranean. I'm joined by Maria Afanasiu, who is an expert in this field. Hello Maria, it's a great pleasure to have you on our podcast.
0: Hello Pedromu, thank you for hosting me.
1: Just a few words about uh, Maria. Uh, Maria Athanasiu holds a bachelor's degree in law from the University of South Wales and a master's degree in international commercial law from the Cardiff University. She is also pursuing her doctorate in the field on the Law of the Sea at the University of Nicosia. And being a member of the Cyprus Bar Association, Maria is also the founder of Athanasiu and Associates LLC based in Cyprus. Maria is a co-author of the book The Future of the Maritime Industry and a lecturer in law at the European University and Cyprus Maritime Academy. She is also involved in various exhibitions concerning energy security in the framework of international law. So Maria, as I've said, you're an expert in the field and it's a great pleasure to have you with us today for this episode. I'd just like uh, to take a moment to break down a bit on your research interests, to share maybe with our listeners a few words on what your research consists of and what you're currently investigating through your doctoral studies. Mm-hmm.
0: Basically, my research is based in the offshore pipelines project in general, and my main research focuses on the multi legislative analysis of the state interest, the rights, the obligations in offshore pipeline projects, and uh, in the instant Mediterranean. So, of course, uh, by investigating the laws, regulation behind the underwater pipeline project and analysing the state interest in those projects, um, of course, this is a relevant and complex area of study covering the law of the sea. So, I'm currently analysing in my study... The uh, and examining the offshore pipeline projects such as TANAP, um, which is the uh, Trans Anatolia Natural Gas Pipeline and the Nord Stream um, Pipeline. Um, Of course, it's important to mention that these projects uh, involve multiple legal jurisdictions. So, uh, often is required the coordination and cooperation of different uh, laws of each state. So, these projects uh, negotiate with uh, different territories, cross borders, they are uh, involving various stakeholders, uh, states, energy companies and many regulatory bodies. So my research is likely to delve into various aspects uh, like the legal and regulatory frameworks by analysing and examining um, the international, regional and national levels governing offshore pipeline projects. And this can involve uh, uh, analysing international conventions, treaties, agreements and and any domestic legislation that can be applicable. Of course, uh, the research, my research focusing on the state interests and stakeholders um, agreements, the rights, obligations uh, of the other actors uh, in offshore pipeline projects. And of course, this uh, can involve, again, exploring uh, principles of international law, such as uh, sovereignty, freedom of navigation, environmental protection, and, and any rights arising from the transit uh, uh, ac- and access to resources. Again, it it can focus, my main research can focus in dispute resolution mechanism if if we see any disputes arising in those projects by investigating uh, the mechanism available for the resolution of disputes that can arise in the planning, construction and operation of an offshore pipeline project and Of course, this uh, may include examining the international arbitration negotiation process and uh, the role of the international organizations in mitigating conflicts. So, um, let's say by contacting a multi-legislative analysis, my research can contribute to um, a deeper understanding of the complex legal and regulatory landscape uh, of those offshore pipeline projects and can shed light uh, on the interplay between state interests, rights, obligation in this context. Energy security is very important into this project, so I'm trying to combine energy security with these projects. This is a a brief (laughs) uh, understanding of what I'm doing.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, it is uh, a brief understanding, uh, but as you've mentioned uh, a couple of times, during your uh, response it's a complex (laughs) issue that you're tackling with and definitely it it has a lot of layers it's interdisciplinary you're looking at uh, the legal context you're looking at international law you're looking at energy Mm -hmm. and and, uh, some aspects of this might also involve uh, issues around energy security and this is very uh uh, topical at the moment because of uh, uh, renewed interest, I would say, in current affairs in the Eastern Mediterranean and energy. Having this in mind, let's try and break things up a bit for our listeners once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, so UNCLOS. What are the key takeaways of this uh, convention?
0: The UNCLOS Convention, of course, is a comprehensive international treaty uh, setting out the legal framework for the use and for the, um, let's say, for the conversation of the world's ocean and their resources. So some of the takeaways from UNCLOS include the territorial waters where UNCLOS establishes uh, the concept of the territorial waters, which is, uh, which can be extended up to 12 nautical miles from the coastal states baseline. And of course, uh, it mentions that uh, the coastal states have full sovereignty over those waters, of course, including the airspace above and the seabed and the subsoil beneath. Anklos again mentions the exclusive economic zones, which grants the coastal states and extends up to 200 nautical miles from the baselines. And uh, within this zone, the coastal state has special rights and jurisdiction over, let's say, exploration exploitation exploitation of natural resources for both uh, living and non-living organisms. And uh, something uh, that we have to mention is that uh, another takeaway from ANCLOS is the continental shelf, which uh, is defined as the natural prolongation of the coastal states, land, territory. And again, it can be extended beyond its exclusive economic zone. So ANCLOS, another takeaway is the uh, freedom of navigation, which of course uh, uncloses guarantees the freedom of navigation for all the shipping, uh, all the all the shipping industry, and for the ships of all nations, uh, both that are in high seas and in the exclusive economic zone of the states, and uh, this includes the innocent passage as well through the territorial waters, and of course the right to transit through international straits. Again, with the freedom of navigation. Um, another takeaway is the uh, conservation and management of the marine resources, which um, UNCLOS emphasizes uh, there's a sustainable use on the conservation of marine resources and it includes, let's say, provisions for the protection, preservation of the marine environment, regulations uh, governing pollution prevention and, of course, the establishment of marine protected areas, uh, so-called areas. And which are the emission control areas? Uh, another takeaway is the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, uh, which UNCLOS establishes uh, the ISA as an organization which is responsible for the regulation control of activities uh, that are taking place in the international seabed uh, area beyond the national jurisdiction, of course. So ANCLOS is widely regarded as a foundational instrument uh, within the international maritime law. So uh, we can say that it it provides a framework for the peaceful and, let's say, cooperative use of the world's ocean uh, law and, of course, their resources, uh, while uh, ANCLOS is ensuring the protection and preservation of the marine environment.
1: It's good that you've laid out the broader spectrum of what ANCLOS is responsible for, what it covers, uh, the bigger picture essentially of what it includes, the organizations involved, and so on. You've also referred to its mission to provide stability, peace, protect the, uh, the areas in the maritime zones. Uh, but of course, you know, narrowing it down, we see that case by case. In practice, there are differences and different applications when it comes to UNCLOS and also when it comes to the states subscribing to UNCLOS and those who don't. That's also another contributing factor, that shape. The perceptions, the attitudes towards the convention. So I, I wanted to ask specifically about how anclos itself relates to um, energy geopolitics, offshore pipeline laws, and the legal disputes that we've seen in the Eastern Mediterranean, because. If UNCLOS aims to provide for peace, stability, protection, and so on, then how come we have this debate and all these legal disputes uh, that we have seen in uh, over the past uh, few years, even in current affairs when, in the Eastern Mediterranean region?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Of course, as we have said that um, ANCLOS plays a significant role in the um, energy geopolitics, offshore pipeline laws, uh, the legal disputes in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, ANCLOS relates to uh, each of the areas that I will mention. The first one is the energy geopolitics, as we said. Uh, It provides the legal framework for determining the maritime boundaries, let's say, the resource rights, the jurisdiction within the ocean. So in the context of uh, energy geopolitics, it helps uh, defining the rights of the coastal state over exploration and exploitation of those offshore energy resources, uh, such as, let's say, oil and gas. Um, again, UNCLOS establishes rules for delimitating the maritime boundaries, uh which I think is very crucial in determining which countries have the jurisdiction over the specific areas and, the, uh, and their associated resources. Uh, we can see it from the Cyprus case as well. So this can can have direct implications for the energy exploration and production activities and can shape the geopolitical, let's say, uh, dynamics in the region. Uh, In regards to the offshore pipeline laws that you mentioned, um, ANCLOS addresses the um, legal aspects of offshore pipelines uh, by establishing the rules for the construction, operation, maintenance of uh, such pipelines, which is uh, Article 79 of UNCLOS, is very important for the maintenance of the pipelines and the cables in, in different in different maritime zones, and uh, it sets uh, out provisions that are related to the installation, um, protection of under, underwater cables and pipelines. It includes again the regulation on safety, environmental protection, um, the rights and responsibilities of the coastal states uh, to the other parties involved in these projects. And um, in general, UNCLOS uh, is providing a framework of, for coastal states um, to exercise their jurisdiction over offshore pipelines projects within their territorial waters. So, exclusive economic zone and continental chef and etc um regarding the uh, legal disputes that you mentioned in the eastern Mediterranean Uh, I have to mention that uh, the Eastern Mediterranean has witnessed legal disputes uh, regarding the maritime boundaries, the resource rights and jurisdiction. And uh, UNCLOS uh, in this point serves uh, as the primary legal instrument for resolving these disputes, um, as it provides, as we have said, guidelines for determining the extent of maritime zones, Including the exclusive economic zone, the continental shelf of the countries and the states, and the territorial waters. So, uh, when these disputes arise, the UNCLOS offer mechanisms for uh, peaceful settlements such as, let's say, negotiation, mediation, arbitration. So um, adherence to an clause and its interpretation, uh, if we can say like that, it plays a crucial role in addressing the legal disputes and promoting stability in a region that has a legal dispute. Um, I believe that in the Eastern Mediterranean, UNCLOS has been invoked in various legal disputes between countries like Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Egypt. So, uh, these, these disputes involve conflicting claims, let's say, over maritime boundaries, resource rights, um, of course, particularly sorry, uh, related to offshore energy resources. So, uh, we can see that ANCLOS serves as a reference point for determining those rights, responsibilities of the involved parties um, and any potential resolution to these, uh, to these disputes. Okay.
1: Uh, one of the foundations of uh, these disputes, which is the different projects that uh, regional players may disagree with or they have, may have to compromise over, and this involves the offshore pipeline projects. What, what kind of uh, projects do we have we had up until this point in the Eastern Mediterranean? Uh, to what extent are they not worthy? And how many of them are actually still going forward mm-hmm. at the moment?
0: Um, There are several uh, noteworthy uh, offshore pipeline projects that have been developed or are proposed uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean regions. Uh, One of them is the EastMED, of course, pipeline project, which is uh, a proposed project that aims uh, to transport natural gas from the Eastern Mediterranean to Europe and it involves the construction of a pipeline basically that uh, will connect the offshore gas fields of Israel, Cyprus and Greece and potentially Italy. So um, another one is the Leviathan-Tamar pipeline, which is uh, an operational project that that is transporting natural gas from the Leviathan and Tamar gas fields offshore to Israel and um, this pipeline connects the gas fields uh, to onshore facilities, which enables the supply of natural gas for domestic consumption and potential um, exporting to neighboring countries of Israel. Uh, Another one is the Egypt's gas infrastructure, which, um, which is in this Mediterranean. Uh, it's, uh, it's the Zohro gas field, as we know, and it was discovered in uh, 2015, which is one of the largest gas fields in the region. And of course, it's located uh, off the Egyptian coast and um, has contributed uh, uh, significantly we can say in the egypt's uh, domestic energy supply and uh, of course uh, with this energy um uh, egypt sorry uh, has established liquefied natural gas so the so-called LNG facilities for exporting purposes um, and for utilizing the offshore gas resources. Another one is the uh, Aphrodite gas field, which uh, is located offshore Cyprus and and, and is part of the broader uh, Levantine basin. Um, It is estimated to uh, hold uh, significant natural gas serves, and uh, the plans have been discussed to develop the field and potentially exporting the gas through pipeline connections. Again, to the neighbouring countries in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, Another one is the Cyprus-Egypt gas pipeline, where Cyprus and Egypt have signed an agreement to construct an underwater pipeline again, uh, connecting their offshore gas reserves. And uh, this pipeline um, will enable uh, the transfer of natural gas resources from uh, the aphrodite field in Cyprus to the Egypt's existing gas infrastructure uh for potential exporting and uh, distribution let's say regional distribution so uh, those projects that we have mentioned uh, represents uh, significant efforts uh, in the eastern mediterranean uh, offshore energy uh, resources and of course uh, we can say that uh, it establishes energy connections among countries in the region and beyond the region um, so uh, it's important to note that the development and the realization, let's say, of these projects uh, can be influenced, of course, by various factors, uh, of course, including geopolitical considerations, legal disputes and political considerations and and, any market uh, dynamics. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, as you've rightly mentioned as well, I mean, uh, synergies over these projects and cooperation improves uh, bilateral and multilateral relations uh and also the, the financial prospects emerging from partnerships uh, also shape uh, policy uh, among these uh, countries that are involved in uh, the eastern Mediterranean, the key players as we like to call them. Uh, but uh, of course at the same time there there are contestations. okay because as you've said in theory and according to Anclaus, which is rightly stated that you know the convention itself aims to resolve disputes, it aims to uh, foster cooperation, it aims to enhance prospects uh, across various fields, across various uh, areas uh, that fall under UNCLOS. But uh, there are certain countries that perhaps do not really uh, abide by UNCLOS, and that's, that's the problem perhaps in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. If we look at the Republic of Cyprus as a case study, for instance, it is uh, evident that the Republic of Turkey uh, does not really respect uh, Cyprus's exclusive economic zone. And also, Turkey does not recognize either, nor does it respect the full extent of the convention, of unclos So one of the main arguments used by Turkey for that, and because you've also mentioned, you've referred to the rights of coastal states, uh, Turkey advocates that coastal and lading states have no real rights when it comes to freedoms in the sea. And this is where things clash. This is where it gets a bit cloudy and problematic. Because on the other hand, a lot of island states have made a claim in line with UNCLOS that they do in fact have a large exclusive economic zone that extends at sea. And if we look at Cyprus, the official EEZ is actually very much extended according to how Cyprus views its own exclusive economic zone. But on the other hand, maps coming in from Turkey, they contradict this. They show that Cyprus does not even has like the very minimal uh, zone that extends only around its coasts, and uh, even though Cyprus has struck agreements with countries like Egypt, as you've rightly pointed out, those are largely ignored. By Turkey, they're not really fully acknowledged by Turkey. So, how do you situate yourself within this uh, debate, especially when it comes to how it is perceived by countries like Turkey who do not really want to engage with a lot of points mentioned by Anklos?
0: Before uh, going to the point of Turkey, uh, we have to mention that the debate between the Republic of Cyprus and Turkey regarding the uh, recognition and the respect. Uh, of the uh, of this Hypers exclusive economic zone and uncles uh, raises complex, legal, and geopolitical, of course, issues. Of so, course. Um, it involves differing interpretations of ANCLOS and its application to the rights and the freedoms within the coastal states in this sea. Uh, so, we can say that uh, under ANCLOS, the coastal states have the right to establish an exclusive economic zone, as we have mentioned in the beginning, extending up to 200 nautical miles from the baseline. So, um, in which you can have special rights, jurisdiction over the exploration and exploitation of the natural resources. So, this includes, as we have said, the seabed, subsoil and the water column. So, uh, in line with UNCLOS, argues that they are entitled to a large exclusive economic zone that extends at sea. So. Um, uh, Turkey consists of certain aspects of UNCLOS and its application, particularly concerning, let's say, the rights of the coastal and length states. And it argues, of course, for the concept of the freedom of the navigation and the uh, asserts that coastal states uh, should have limited rights in certain areas and ca- kind of this stuff. We have to mention that most countries are recognizing international law something that turkey must do so turkey should recognize international law like the most countries which uh, each territory which recognize that each territory has its own exclusive economic zone so as far as the exclusive economic zone of cyprus um, uh, is recognized by the international community. Uh, Turkey has nothing to do with the resources of Cyprus field. So only the Republic of Cyprus uh, has uh, sovereignty rights over their resources. Um, so. Um, in the event that uh, uh, let's say for the uh, Turkish Cypriots for the factor of the Turkish Cypriots that Turkey is claiming um and they are concerned in the event that they recognize the Republic of Cyprus they can be let's say co-exploiters of the situation i mean the Turkish Cypriots don't get don't get me wrong on that so uh it's worth noting that uh, international legal frameworks like anclos provides uh, Um, a basis, let's say, for resolving this kind of disputes and promoting stability in the region. So um, adherence to UNCLOS and its principles, uh, it can contribute to a peaceful resolution and equitable distribution of maritime rights and resources. Uh, Of course, however let's say the interpretation and the application of UNCLOS in practice in specific cases like uh the Cypriot and the Turkish one um are subject to varying perspectives and required examination to reach a consensus so uh It is important to note that the international actors, including the United Nations and any other regional organization, uh, have been involved in efforts to facilitate dialogue and uh, find a peaceful, let's say, resolution to the disputes in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, but these processes uh, aim to address the concerns of all parties involved and promote adherence to international law, including UNCLOS. So um, overall, the debate surrounding uh, the recognition and the respect of the Exclusive Economic Zone of Cyprus and, and the differing, of course, interpretations of UNCLOS by Cyprus and by, Turkey's, uh, by Turkey uh, highlights the complexity of balancing national interest, historical context, uh, international legal frameworks in in resolving those maritime disputes. So, uh, in my opinion, finding a mutually acceptable solution that respects both rights uh, of of all the stakeholders uh, remains a significant challenge and uh, it will not be solved anytime soon.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the long, persisting, uh, protracted conflict that uh, we see in Cyprus and uh, how it also inhibits very visibly uh, several other uh, key areas, key opportunities for growth, for policy maturity, for, uh, you know, equally benefiting across all uh, sides uh, within, you know, disputes and uh, conflict as such you know for equal for the stakeholders to equally find stable footing and manage to overcome these challenges and you know the the lack of uh, settlement when it comes to this kind of conflict it's uh, it also inhibits these areas and cyprus and turkey they're uh, a very special case i would say uh, when it comes to maritime disputes that we've seen because it you know, it involves other things as well. It involves politics. It involves uh, the law, of course. It involves perceptions. It's a multi-layered kind of uh, issue. Uh, but now let's turn to uh, Europe, uh, because there's been, as I've said, renewed discussion on the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, especially in the aftermath, uh, following, I mean, the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. There has been renewed interest or at least, you know, uh, whispers of renewed interest uh, for the uh, European energy market when it comes to energy and hydrocarbon exploration in the Eastern Mediterranean. So to what extent would you say that current policies sufficiently address prospects that... Uh, would include the European energy market in exploiting and ex- exploring and exploiting uh, energy reserves in the Eastern Mediterranean.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we have to say that the uh, prospects for the um, European energy market um, regarding the energy uh, and hydrocarbons exploration in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean are significant, but uh, face uh, various challenges. So, uh, we can say this because the region has seen the discovery of uh, substantial natural gas reserves in the recent years, as we can see, uh, which has attracted attention uh, from uh, many European countries, of course seeking to diversify their energy resources and reduce dependence on traditional suppliers. So um, the exploration activities in the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly, let's say, like uh, in in countries uh, like Israel, Cyprus, Egypt, uh, have, of course, potential, uh, have the potential to provide um, new energy resources for Europe. So uh, I believe that these resources uh, could contribute uh, to meeting the, the European energy demand, let's say, and of course enhancing the uh, energy security in the region. So the development of uh, offshore gas fields, such as, let's say, uh, Leviathan, or has already resulted in increased natural gas production and export capabilities. Uh, in Cyprus actually we are now building the LNG uh offshore project uh, outside Vasilikos that they will will keep uh, uh, the gas f- for, for ex- exporting and importing from uh from Israel so uh however uh, the full realization of these prop- prospects um uh, in contingent upon several factors uh the geopolitical tensions and, of course, the territorial disputes in the Eastern Mediterranean, pose uh, challenges, uh, of course, to energy exploration and production. So, legal disputes over maritime boundaries and resource rights, um, uh, as well as uh, any overlapping claims, uh, of course, can uh, hinder the progress of the projects and can create uncertainties into, for, for the investors. So uh, we can say uh, all along with this that uh, infrastructure and transportation considerations uh, plays a crucial role. So the construction of pipelines or other means of transporting the gas Uh, to Europe from the Eastern Mediterranean is uh, necessary for unlocking the full potential of the region's energy resources. So, uh, in my opinion, the proposed with pipeline, for example, uh, would require substantial investments and, of course, face technical and economic challenges. So, in terms of the current policy... Uh, the European countries have expressed uh, many times interest in diversifying uh, their energy resources. uh, Through exploration in the Mediterranean hydrocarbon reserves. So, um, the EU has been supportive of the projects uh, that contribute to the energy security and, of course, diversification within the region. So, um, in these terms, the European Union's energy policy promotes, of course, cooperation, dialogue, um, adherence to international law, of course, including the UNCLOS, and uh, addresses disputes and ensuring a stable investment climate. Uh, But, of course, the complexities of the geopolitical landscape and the ongoing disputes, of course, highlights the, the need for continued diplomatic efforts And regional cooperation um, in order to fully address the prospects for the um, uh, for the European market, European energy market, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean um, region. So, uh, of course, this includes uh, uh, fostering dialogue uh, among the countries involved. Let's say seeking multilateral agreements, uh, utilizing international legal mechanisms, of course, for resolving disputes and providing a stable framework for the energy exploration and production within uh, the Eastern Mediterranean region.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it remains an open-ended uh, question at this point. There is a lot of uh, moving parts, and uh, at the same time, we still don't have. Uh, we see the willingness of uh, uh, players like the European Union who of course, by default, advocate for uh, cooperation, stability and so on, especially when it comes to energy, uh, which uh, is a a crucial point and has uh, been uh, uh, at the spotlight ever since uh, over the last few months, especially for um, uh, periods of extended need uh, for energy and heating, uh, such as uh, during winter. And, you know, this, this conversation goes on and on. And it's, uh, like I said, an open-ended question. But it's very good to receive, uh, you know, deeper insights on this uh, from experts like yourself. So at this point, I'd like to thank you for uh, sharing with uh, the rest of us your insights. And I'd like to wish you all the best with your future work and research.
0: Thank you so much and and, uh, I would like to say from my side that um, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be a guest on your
1: podcast.